Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We are taping today on Thursday, November 12th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Shafali Luthra of the 19th. Hello. And we welcome back to the podcast Stephanie Armour of the Wall Street Journal. Hi, good morning. So let's start with President-elect Biden, because we couldn't quite call him that last week. This is my sixth presidential transition, including in 2000, when we honestly didn't know who won until the Supreme Court decided in December. But this is still by far the weirdest one. President Trump has not only refused to concede, he's instructing his government to prepare for a second term, including vetting new appointments and working on a fiscal 2022 budget. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans, who know they need Trump to help them with the two Senate runoffs in early January that will determine which party controls the chamber, don't want to acknowledge reality either. How much is this setting back the presidential transition in the midst of an economic and health crisis? It's very frustrating for the individuals who are on on the Biden transition team, especially as it relates to the individuals who are focusing and advising on coronavirus. Um, They are having to basically reach out to companies that are working on the vaccine, manufacturers and distributors on their own instead of getting the information from FDA. They had been in talks with a number of people uh, within the agency before the election. And now because of some of the legal constraints with what's going on, those individuals can no longer sort of talk to them and brief them on what's going on. So um, it is uh, providing some frustrations because they very much say that they want to be ready to go on January 20th. What would normally be happening? This would normally be the transition time where they're sending teams in, where they're starting the handoff, where they're learning a lot of the details about the distribution of the vaccine, the effectiveness and trials on the vaccine. When it comes at least to the COVID process, they're really learning that through other parties. On one hand, though, they do. I mean, this is an obstacle. There's no minimizing. It is an obstacle. But certain relationships do exist. It's not like like the, the people on the coronavirus transition team are not allowed to pick up the phone or their Zoom or whatever with Anthony Fauci. They all know each other, right? So the, the relationships exist, but communication is barred because the relationships exist. They can, you know, it's not, there's trust in history. You know, they've been going the same infectious disease and bioterror and flu pandemic, you know, conferences for 20 years. So those relationships are there, but they're on, they're on sort of in deep freeze. Yeah, and um, the communication is what's really important right now when they're in that process of trying to get ready to take over. So the communication blackout with some of these people they had been talking with for quite some time, they say is putting up a roadblock to where they want to be able to ramp up right now versus later. The GSA, the General Services Administration, the head of the GSA, is supposed to, I believe, attain, uh, the, is, the, is the, the actual term of art, that Biden has won and thus release funding and office space and the ability to do background checks. And that hasn't happened yet. And it's not clear when that will happen, possibly not until, you know, the electors meet, which is, I think, the middle of December. I mean, that could really set things back, right? It's a really bizarre situation. I mean, everyone that I'm talking to is saying just just how unprecedented this sort of a situation really is, especially when you're in the throes of the nation reeling from a pandemic. And there's 
there's a real need to make sure everyone's on the same page and able to pick up effortlessly, especially on the vaccine. People are really scratching their heads in deep frustration right now. So Biden has announced both a group of COVID advisors and a transition team. Uh, I think they're called landing teams for the Department of Health and Human Services. Everybody is now listed as working as a volunteer since the money has not been released yet. There are lots of familiar and expected names, people from the Obama administration, a couple of people from the Clinton administration. Did anybody on either panel jump out to anyone or is there anybody sort of conspicuously missing? Well, of course, Rick Bright, I think for many people was sort of an eyebrow raiser because he's been in the news so much uh, during the coronavirus pandemic. He's the individual who filed a complaint against HHS over being removed from his position. I believe it was at BARDA. He said he was removed for pushing back on the use of the anti-malarial drug that President Trump had been so supportive of. Now, he had been working very closely on some of the vaccine stuff, so I'm assuming that's some of the area where he will be working. But I know that was a name that had uh, some eyebrows raised when it came up because he is certainly uh, polarizing. And he's on the COVID advisory board. I was a little bit surprised. I I suspect they did that as much for the value of saying, here's a guy who says he was run out of the department. He ended up resigning because he was trying to put science over politics and we want him on our team. The one thing we do know, because it's been named, is that Ron Klain is going to be the chief of staff for incoming President Biden. I imagine that's not a surprise to a lot of people um, because he's been a very close confidant uh, of Biden since Biden's years in the Senate. He was chief of staff um, when Biden was vice president. He was chief of staff for Vice President Gore back in the day. So he obviously knows how the how the place operates. I mean, what is Ron Klain being named say to us? Steady hand, close relationship with the president-elect, knows Washington knows the White House, knows the Hill, and knows a lot about public health because he was the Ebola czar during the Ebola crisis, which I think was, was it 2015? 2014. 2014. You know, he was the point person. And he's quite knowledgeable about public health. You know, we think of him as public health guy. But I mean, if you go talk to a transportation reporter, they're going to say, he's the high-speed rail guy. <laughs> I mean, he was at Senate Judiciary. I mean, he knows the court process. Um, you know, for those of us who cover health, he's not a scientist, but he is steeped in this. He has executed public health emergency plans. He has learned it. I remember talking to him during Zika as well. What should we do? What he had he respond? He, he's thought about this. And he is not the head of the coronavirus task force, but he certainly has relationships with the people on it. And they can feel, um, the scientists and doctors working on transition can feel um, that they have someone who, you know, may not speak molecules, but speaks pandemic. Yeah, I remember sort of in 2014, when he was appointed being kind of snarky on Twitter about, you know, it would be nice if the person running this had some actual public health expertise. And it turned out I was completely wrong and have apologized to him since then, because what his job was, was basically to bring together everybody in the government who was working on this. And he did, because that's exactly what he does. You know, as I say, this was, I think, fully expected. I think people would have been really surprised if it had been somebody else. And he knows Um, David Kessler very well, who's going to who's leading the coronavirus advisory board to President-elect Biden. So there's be a natural working synergy there, I think. They've worked together very well. And yeah, for those who don't remember, David Kessler was the head of the FDA during the first Bush administration, who was kept on uh, by the Clinton administration. Um, and it is still sort of, I guess, an, an elder statesman of public health. <laughs> he and Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, have been on the Biden health advisory team since around March. And they have been the two people who've been doing um, often daily briefings 
um, to then candidate Biden. And um, sometimes those briefings, they were at least four days a week, often more, and they were often an hour. Biden get, didn't get an MPH in the last eight months, but, you know, could probably could pass the test. Right. And it was pretty immersed in, in pretty detailed um, information about the trajectory of the spread of the disease, as well as the therapeutics and vaccines, et cetera. And this has been a priority for Biden since the pandemic began. This is also worth thinking about just in terms of the sheer contrast to what we have gotten used to over the past four years. Ron Klain is a logical choice. Like it makes sense, which just like feels unnatural now. The idea of the president-elect having almost daily hour-long briefings about the coronavirus when was the last time President Trump met with the coronavirus task force? I don't know. It just it seems like we shouldn't ignore what a big deal it is to have baseline normal response again. Yes. And to have something that you could uh, actually assume was going to be the logical thing to happen, happen. So we uh, we assume that that even overcoming the difficulties, Biden will be able to assemble a government. But we have no idea what kind of Congress he's going to be working with. Um, at this point, it would appear that barring something really unexpected, like Democrats winning both of the runoffs in Georgia, Mitch McConnell will still be majority leader come January. Obviously, that that's going to severely constrain Biden's legislative agenda, or will it? Is there any chance that Biden's going to be able to make good on his pledge to achieve bipartisanship? I see heads shaking. Somebody has to say something. A public option seems really unlikely if Democrats don't win both Georgia Senate seats. I was really surprised to hear him talk about that on Tuesday. Like, There's a lot that he can do that through executive order, through regulation, Maybe we could see something bipartisan on surprise bills or prescription drugs, but like a public option or redoing how we calculate subsidies on the marketplace that I don't I don't think there's much of a good chance of that happening. I will go out on a limb and say even if Democrats do win both Georgia runoffs and the, the Democrats control the Senate with 50 votes, those things would be unlikely. What does this mean for the, the Senate agenda? Um, most of what Biden hoped to achieve, as we just heard, no, it's going to be a no go in the Senate. But we will see Biden does as as he has powers he can use as Trump and as Obama did, executive orders, waivers, things that his uh, administration can do, guidance to the states, guidance to state Medicaid directors. There are things he can do to shape health care. Uh, he could give states the right to experiment with something like a public option or a different subsidy structure, but he could not get national legislation of his sort of big agenda items on health care through a Republican Senate and even if both Georgia seats go Democratic, which is, you know, not what most people expect right now, but it's an unusual Senate race, who knows, it will still be hard, even with Kamala Harris breaking a tie vote, it would still be hard to get those particular, many of the, maybe the subsidies, but maybe, 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 you know, it's, Joe Manchin is a conservative Democrat. He's not going to go along with everything that Biden does. And there are other centrists who may not want to do everything that Biden wants to do. I do think we should think at least for a moment about some of the things that Biden could do just through the office of the president alone. Like, they're not small, right? We see re-bringing back Planned Parenthood into Title 10. We can talk more about Section 1557 or short-term health plans. And like, none of these are the big sweeping vision that, that Biden promised. And as I think Larry Levitt really smartly noted, right, it's much easier to sort of do what Trump did and weaken regulations than it is to to advance things through the president alone. But those changes that could be made just simply reversing what Trump did are not insubstantial and would matter to a lot of Americans. Yes. I mean, Trump has done a lot through executive order and Biden could do a lot to reverse that and possibly do more. 
I mean, one thing you could see right away, very, very soon, you could see in January or February, there is something called a SEP, a special enrollment period under the Obamacare markets. The enrollment period right now, which is going on as we speak, the administration, the current administration has not been doing outreach, is not telling people about it. Um, it's only six weeks. It stops on uh, December 15th. Biden can open a special enrollment period very easily, which means that people who've lost their job and lost their insurance or sort of missed this Obamacare period, we have more, many more uninsured people in America than we had a year ago. We don't know the exact number, but it's in the millions, probably low millions, not 100 million. Um, but those people can, by creating a special enrollment period, you can say, you qualify, sign up right now. And he could do that. He could, not only could he create a special enrollment period, but an individual qualifies for a special enrollment period. He could, and so if you say he had a special enrollment period in January and February, or he's coming in January 20th, say February, just making up February, March. If you lost your job in April, you'd still be able to use your own personal special enrollment period. But right now, there's been no outreach about that. People don't know that. And if you do know that, it's cumbersome. It's, it's, it's just, it's not easy. So he could just make it easier. I lost my job. I'm going into Obamacare right now. If I get another job, I'll get out of Obamacare. And that could happen fast and that can make a, a big difference to people. Although it is true, people can get Obamacare if they lose their job, um, change of life. But one thing I'm wondering, what do you think he'll do with cost sharing reduction subsidies? I know that's such a good, because that had, I mean, such, that's you know, had when, such a big impact yeah, on the market, right? It has. And, but it, not in the way, I mean, Trump, Trump canceled them to try and throw a monkey wrench into the market. And as it turned out, it improved the market exactly. for an awful lot of people. So the market has adjusted in sort of a, a way that's beneficial to consumers. It's costing the federal government more money. My guess would be that he would not put the federal funding back. That's um, my because guess, that too. would yeah. That would twist the market again in a different way. It's fascinating. Um, but I don't think that's going to be at the sort of top of the list for, for what he's going to do. I know Democrats were really alarmed when that happened. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. I bet that will stick around. Everything with the Affordable Care Act has unintended consequences, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I want to talk about COVID, um, because it turns out that Donald Trump was wrong. COVID did not disappear the day after the election. In fact, it is getting dramatically worse. Just about every state is going in the wrong direction. And in some states, healthcare resources are being stretched dangerously thin. But there was a glimmer of good news, apparently really good news. We got the first results of a trial of a vaccine made by Pfizer, and they say it's 90% effective. But that's just the top line. There's a lot we still really don't know about this vaccine, right? Yes. I mean, that 90% figure, I think is 94%, um, is based on a relatively small group of people. Half the people get, I don't know if it's half, but one group of people in a clinical trial gets the placebo, one group gets the real vaccine, and then you compare infection rates a lot more people in the placebo group became infected than the non-placebo group. Therefore, the vaccine made the difference. Um, you know, as they get more data on more people and track it longer, the numbers will change. Is it going to be 94%? Maybe not. You know, maybe it'll go up to 96. Maybe it'll go down to 80. I mean, I, nobody knows. It's unlikely to wash out. It's unlikely to be a failure at this point. We have a very promising vaccine. And the chances are we will have another one or two or three in the next month, two, three months. The, the Moderna one, which is similar, an RNA messenger vaccine, and do not ask me to define that, um, that's pro we're probably going to hear a little bit 
some preliminary uh, early results in a week or two as well. The one that a lot of the global health people are looking at is Johnson & Johnson, which is a little bit further down the road, but it doesn't need super cool, below, way below zero refrigerate freezing. Which is my next question. Right. That's going to be good for, that'll be better for poorer countries. It's really, really good news, though. The um, individuals that I've been speaking to who are close to this have reassured me that they feel pretty confident about what they know in terms of this being a safe vaccine. I mean, granted that we still have to see, but the the level of kind of optimism I'm hearing is very different than I was hearing before. Um, I mean, there's also this interesting battle that's now going on between President Trump and a number of members of his task force who are questioning the timing of the release of the information and sort of blaming FDA Stephen Hahn and for saying it should have been released earlier. It's it's always interesting how these things then become political, but. The one thing I'm hearing is that this is good news, but people need to really hunker down now for this winter. Yeah, because it's going to take a while before. I mean, it's a it's a two shot series. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there, you know, and it's still it's still pretty preliminary. One of the trickiest things, as Joanne alluded to, about this vaccine is that it needs to be kept not just cold, but really, really cold, um, and that creates a problem for further flung areas. How big a a block will this be that that you need, you know, like super special cold freezers for it? Well, I mean, it's an obstacle, but it's not an insurmountable obstacle in this country. It's an obstacle. But Pfizer, um, the maker of this particular vaccine, has already developed special transportation and storage containers using dry ice. They will know how to ship it. They're not using the shipping blueprint that the government was looking at because they realized this early on. So they have thingamajigs that'll <laughs> hold the vaccine at what? 90, That's a term it, of 90, art. I like that. 90... 90, per, was it 90 degrees b- below zero? I think it's 94, yeah. It's, 94, it's minus like 94. That. Really cold. Really and cold. And ships it like that. Then once it gets to its destination, it can go into regular medical refrigerators for five days. But you're going to have, and particularly in smaller communities, you're really going to, you don't want to throw it out, right? You've got a limited supply. So there's going to have to be a lot of really state-of-the-art logistical planning and data tracking because once it gets to the smaller community and they get X doses and they get in the refrigerator for five days, you want to make sure you use them for five days. This is not a minor problem, but if things are going to go wrong, we would all be stunned if things do not go wrong. But is there a way to distribute it? Yes. It's much harder in poor countries, which with less electricity, less less consistent grids, harder to transport, takes longer to transport. I don't know if they can helicopter or drone. I mean, we're, we're actually sort of looking at this. But the Ebola vaccine had to be frozen too. Very, very cold. Not quite as cold as this, but also abnormally cold. And they were able to do that with the Ebola vaccine. But the Ebola vaccine, you know, went to hundreds of thousands of people, not billions of people. So I don't want to minimize this is a problem. But, you know, given a choice between figuring out how to distribute a vaccine or do we have a vaccine? I'm going to go with, I'd rather be working, worrying about distributing. I'm glad you brought up the logistics because obviously that speaks to, you know, the need for leadership on this. Currently uh, in, the, in the federal government, uh, it seems to be the fact that more and more top officials in the White House are testing positive for COVID, starting with White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, then are actually working on COVID from what we can <laughs> tell. Um, how serious is it that the COVID response is basically on autopilot? right now while the surge is happening and 
this, we're getting ready to at least think about how to distribute this vaccine that needs to be kept really, really, really cold. Well, I will say, I think the White House is very focused on a vaccine and distribution. They've seen that as sort of the panacea from the get-go, kind of to the detriment of public messaging about public health measures that people can take now to mitigate or curb the virus. And the individuals that I'm talking to, especially around the Biden camp, are very concerned about the lack of cohesive messaging, what happens in one state, as we've seen, is spilling over into another state. And that, I think, is a significant concern. I mean, we are looking at possibly in three weeks hitting 2,000 deaths a day, 400,000 by February 1st, according to IHME. These are really astounding numbers. And healthcare workers are already strapped. This is going to cause uh, spillover deaths and, and morbidity for people who have other issues that won't be able to get care. I think it's deeply, deeply alarming. And at least from the Biden camp, they feel there's a, a real lack of messaging on right now. The White House, yeah, the White House task force met on, I think, Monday? Yes. Um, for, the, for the first time in a long time. And they talked um, about weeks. the vaccine. That was the major thrust of right. the meeting, which is where they're head is, yeah. But this, the only public messaging, there's zero. I mean, Pence hasn't come out. Azar hasn't come out. No, I mean, all we're, we're, we're not wondering what are they going to say. We're wondering how long do they hold on to their jobs. The only public messaging has been Scott Atlas, you know, attacking Tony Fauci. And I, I think it's worth pointing out that the administration has said, our strategy, they don't call it herd immunity, but their strategy has been, we are going to protect the most vulnerable people, by which they mostly mean nursing home residents. But that there clearly is not happening, happening in nursing right. homes. <laughs> Cases and deaths are rising in nursing homes. They're not hermetically sealed. Staff comes in and out. And even if you test people, it's, it's still going to seep into the nursing homes. It is in the nursing homes. The second thing is that's way too narrow a definition of who's vulnerable. You know, the vulnerable people are not only in nursing homes. They're, they may be the most vulnerable, but anyone with any kind of immune compromise, anyone who's obese, anyone over 60 or 65 or 70, depending on where you want to make that cutoff, anyone with diabetes, anyone with, you know, a, a host of other diseases, including people with cancer have Im- immune compromised systems. Millions and millions of Americans are highly vulnerable, plus the, the odd young healthy person who, for reasons we don't understand, dies. And then all the other people who survive but will have long-term damage to hearts, lungs, brains, kidneys, etc. You know, A, the strategy is deeply flawed. And B, there's, you know, 120,000 reasons a day to know that it's not working. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a horrific winter with an unprecedented number of deaths for the U.S. And at this point, I don't see that trajectory turning around. And I find that really concerning. No. And the other thing that people, you know, sort of are forgetting is that, you know, we talk about how many hospital beds and ventilators we have, but they're not necessarily the people to staff them. It's not very right. helpful to get right. have a hospital bed if there are no nurses or respiratory therapists. And, you know, when New York was under such siege in the spring, we had people coming in from around the country. But now there are not extra people from around the country because it's everywhere. It's not like you can, you know, fly in people to help because those people are needed where they are now. There are simply not enough help healthcare professional bodies. Plus, in a lot of places, these people have been working night and day for nine months. Yeah. I mean, it's really not a good situation. And testing again is getting hard. Yeah. I was like, Joanne made this point before we started taping, right? But like, we've known it would be this bad since the beginning. Like anyone could have seen this as coming. And I think every now and then I think back to the messaging in March where, right, where we all were staying at home. There were a lot more, if like, if lockdown is the wrong word, but really, really tough measures taken to to make sure that we mitigated the spread of infection. And it feels like that's really absent now from the discourse as well, right? Like restaurants are open, bars are open, um, 
Football games are happening with fans there in person. Gyms are open. Schools. <laughs> the entire state of Florida is open. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's really shocking that we haven't made any changes to this. Yeah, right. I know. Right. It's just been a story of squandered opportunities. I mean, as, as Chevali said, I mean, we were talking before we, we began taping. I mean, I, I wrote months ago, you know, like April or May, that it wasn't a matter of a first surge and a second surge. We're not talking about one wave and then it went away and then it came back in cold weather. We have had nonstop one wave and it has spikes. It gets worse and then it gets a little bit better and it gets worse and it gets a little bit better. But each time it's, a, it's an upward trend. It gets worse and then it gets somewhat better, but it doesn't go down to zero. It goes down to, well, better than it was a few weeks ago. And then, so the baseline for the next surge is worse. And we are now, I think there were 140,000 cases yesterday. Is that something like that? That's pretty on track. Yeah. But what do we, I guess that's my a, question that's a million a week. As all of us from health reporters, we're looking at this, and a lot of our listeners are probably, you know, quite attuned to all this as well. The question I struggle with is what do we do now? How can we confront this when we have also this, this odd time that's happening with this president elect? And will Biden's people start filling that vacuum with some kind of press releases? I think they're somewhat reluctant to. You know, do anyone see anything on the horizon that might change or help the trajectory where we're on? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it would. <laughs> It would help if uh, if we could sort of settle the election. I think people are distracted. Yeah, I'm just wondering, does anyone see anything that's making them hopeful about this? Not this at the number? moment. And now we're getting to Thanksgiving where we have all these college students who went away to college, perhaps not so advisedly, planning to come home for Thanksgiving, um, which is probably not a good thing. Um, that I mean, well, most of the colleges are stopping. I mean, that they they're not conti- they're they're doing exams at home. Most of them are stopping at Thanksgiving break, and if the, if they're open, they're not going to open again until a few months from now, January or so. Um, some of the colleges are requiring exit testing. You can't leave without getting tested before you go home. If I were to have a college kid come home, mine's been stuck here. Mine was away for a few weeks, and he tested before coming home. But he was also in an environment that was quite safe with frequent testing and in a pod, and you know he's he's okay. Even so, even though he was tested, even though he he wasn't a pod. We masked in the house his first week home, and we didn't eat dinner together. We ate in the weather here was nice for those listeners outside of Washington. We have a porch off the dining room. He ate in the porch. We ate in the dining room. We we could see each other, but we we had lots of ventilation and we had lots of open air. In Minnesota, you're not going to be able to have your college freshmen sit on the porch and eat Thanksgiving dinner. Ah, uh, they're used to the cold in Minnesota. People, kids who come home from college <laughs> either test before they get home or test as soon as they get home and don't hug your mommy until you. I mean, it's really hard as a mom. Not hugging your kid when they've been away for a month, you know, it's like incredibly hard, right? Maybe not on him. <laughs> do we know, one question I have for everybody too, do we know what's going on with testing? For example, I was struck that there was someone I knew who needed to get a test in Washington, D.C. Uh, yesterday, and everything was booked up in terms of the drive-through test till it, late Friday. Like, are we seeing pressure in the in the testing sphere too in terms of supplies? I think it's partly because people who do want to be with their families on Thanksgiving are trying to get that test before you see your grandmother. Um, so I think some of it is that we're getting out near the holidays and if people want to do some combination of self-isolation and testing before, um, you know, even a small family gathering, I think that's some of it. And also, you know, it's creeping up. We haven't seen a testing crisis the way we had last spring. The pipelines on testing are certainly better, but given that this is so intensely out of control now, you know, will we see shortages? Will we see, no, you can't get an optional one? You know, will we see only symptomatic people 
getting it, only people in the hospital getting it, only people with a certain degree of severity getting it, we could get back to that. I don't think we have yet. Yeah. I th- think there's also a lot of people who've gone back to work for whatever reason. I have a neighbor who, you know, works in a public school and she's been getting tested once a week, not required, but she, you know, she's working with kids and she would soon for the protection of her family. Um, so I think there's a lot because there's more people going back to work. I think a lot more of those people are going out and getting tested. I think that may be part of why the, the testing is, is getting, you know, pretty, if not hard to get, at least harder to get. All right. Well, we can, we could talk about this forever and we will talk about it more next week, but I do need to move on. Um, as we've been talking about for months now, the Affordable Care Act got its day in court, the Supreme Court, for the third time in eight years on Tuesday, and things went, well, better than expected. Of course, it's hard to tell from the oral arguments. Justices like to play devil's advocates. So you never know what they're really thinking. But it certainly seems like there aren't five votes to strike down the entire law. Um, since I've done this like a thousand times this week, would someone else please explain what this case is about in case we have some new listeners? Sure. I'm happy to if that works. Um, please. So this this lawsuit comes back from the way back when the, the tax law that President Trump signed in, in 2017? 2017. God, it's been a, yes, been a million years since then. But that that law set the individual mandate to zero dollars, right? Technically still on the books, but ineffective. We have a group of Republican states, state attorneys general, who are now arguing that without the mandate in effect, the mandate is unconstitutional. The entire law hinges on the mandate, they argue, cannot be severed. Therefore, the entire law must be struck down. The Trump administration, in a very rare, unusual move, did not defend the law in court. In fact, argued that the law argued with the states against the law and now here we are with a group of liberal states headed by California trying to to defend the law arguing that the mandate they're both arguing that it is constitutional and is severable it seems from my take of Tuesday's arguments and as Julie mentioned this is all sort of speculation could be wrong it seemed that there could be five votes for declaring the mandate unconstitutional but that it could be severed from the law Right. And what this case is turning on is whether the Republicans challenging law called the naked mandate, because it used to say you had to either have insurance or pay a penalty of X dollars. And now it says you either have to have insurance or pay a penalty of zero dollars. So the question is, is that really a mandate anymore? Um, Because the the penalty is zero dollars. But even if it is, then the question is, if the mandate comes out, does the rest of the law have to fall or even do the things intimately connected to the mandate, like the pre-existing condition protections, also have to fall. And Justice Kavanaugh, and this had been hinted at by, you know, scholars and Supreme Court watchers, based on some of his uh, opinions from the last term, said that Justice Kavanaugh is pretty bullish on when a piece of a law gets struck down, not striking down anything else. I believe it was using a scalpel rather than a bazooka. And indeed, Justice Kavanaugh actually said that, which I think surprised some people. So, And everybody assumes that, I guess, Chief Justice Roberts, who has twice uh, voted to protect the law, and this is considered a much weaker case, that, in fact, someone wrote that Justice Roberts seemed annoyed by the entire proceedings. Um, I think it's a fair description. As someone who doesn't routinely cover the court, I was actually quite surprised at how they weren't obscure about things. I mean, Kavanaugh said that over and over again. Robert said things. You know, Alito had some questions. So I can see, as Shafali just said, I can see them just getting rid of the mandate and leaving everything else intact. And since the mandate is sort of irrelevant at the moment, you know, whether it's 5-4 or 6-3 or whatever, you, you get rid of the mandate, leave everything else. It's a status quo. The other thing they could do is dismiss it on what they call standing, which means that these guys who 
uh, these two men from Texas who have sued that they don't really have a right to sue. Their argument is you know, they have to buy insurance because the, they don't want to buy one of these plans and because the mandate says they have to. And there were all sorts of, I mean, it was just a sort of cornucopia of weird metaphors about things you're supposed to do, but don't like, you know, if I think, you know, it was Breyer who said, well, you know, you're supposed to observe National Pork Week. Well, he said port, but we all think he meant pork. Oh. <laughs> You know, or, you know, you're, you're in a community where you're supposed to mow your lawn once a week. I mean, you know, maybe your neighbors will frown at you, but you're really not harmed by that. So, you know, they, they can just say, you guys don't have right to sue. You don't have standing. Bye bye. Sayonara. It's over. Don't bother. Don't bother us again. This will be the third case. I was going to say, I think there are two things worth noting that might have gotten kind of buried in, in the headlines of this, which is striking down the mandate as unconstitutional would still be a really big deal. Um, I was talking to some legal scholars who made the point that that could set a precedent for much weaker leeway in terms of what the federal government can advise or compel people to do. And one point she made is that could lay legal groundwork for undoing, for instance, a government like mandate or advisory for everyone to get a COVID vaccine. Um, that was really shocking to me. I think that's really important. And to think long term, what the the implications would be if the mandate goes away. We don't really have mandates for vaccines. We have mandates for vaccines if you want to go to public school. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, it's like, and say, you know, same thing with car insurance. You're required to have car insurance, but you don't have to drive. And sure. if you don't drive, you don't have to have car insurance. I mean, Congress could re, I mean, not a, not a Republican Congress, but a future Congress could reinstate the mandate with a one cent tax, you know, one cent penalty, and that restores it. So I don't know that this because this is a mandate that's toothless now, right? That there's there's no penalty. It's a figment of a man, you know, mandate imagination. I haven't heard as much about that. I just think we have many, many other mandates that the courts have upheld. I mean, laws and the criminal code. I mean, you know, we have mandates in all sorts of ways and states have mandates. States could still do a mandate. You know, a, a blue state could do a mandate for health insurance. I think three or four of them already have. I think New Jersey and I can't remember which ones actually California. went into effect. California. Um, so, and actually, I I will say I, when they were talking about lawn mowing ordinances, it's like I'm pretty sure in my county, if you don't mow your lawn, the county will come and do it for you and send you a bill. Yeah, so I don't great. I don't think it's that toothless. <laughs> I think that's true in a lot of places. They're they're pretty serious about some of those. I mandates. just want to know about Pork Week. I didn't even know there was a Pork Week. Well, he said port. Oh, port I mean, week. He did say port. <laughs> they do. They, I, I mean, know there was so much food and vegetables that I sort of thought maybe it was not. It's unlikely that we have a national pork week, that we have a national port week, isn't it? I think port week sounds yes, lovely, was, yeah. Whatever. Pork, port. I'm going to have to look this principle. up. Yeah. He was point. I think he was saying Congress does all these ceremonial days and weeks. You and shall stuff. observe, right? <laughs> or you yeah. should observe, week. since yeah. that was another issue. But yes, yeah, yeah. that was funny. all right. Well, that is this week's news. Uh, now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org/slash What the Health. Shvali, why don't you go first this week? Great. So this is a story from STAT by Elizabeth Cooney, and it gets to what we were talking about earlier. The headline is, with a meteoric rise in deaths, talk of waves is misguided, say COVID-19 modelers. And the point they make, which is a point we've talked about at length on this podcast, is that things never really got better here, right? We may have seen some like marginal dips, but we never had waves. We've had a slow, gradual increase. They talk a lot about the number of deaths that could come if we don't really step up on things like masking universally, um, more social distancing, et cetera. And one argument they make that I thought was interesting is years down the line, instead of calling this waves, we might call this a 
consistent curve upward with some humps. Um, <laughs> they also point out that in 1918, there actually were two waves because things got better in the summer and then there was a devastating second wave. So this, the, the logic goes, could be much worse than the 1918 flu pandemic. Somebody actually pointed out, I forget who, that November 11th, the, the, the armistice day for World War One, was also the height of the 1918 pandemic. So that, that's an unfortunate piece of trivia. Joanne? Um, mine is a by Julie's colleague at KHN, Sarah Varney, really excellent piece called Trump's Anti-Abortion Zeal Shook Fragile Health Systems Around the World. And basically, it looks at how the so-called Mexico City policy, which prevents USAID um, to groups that do have anything whatsoever to do with abortion, even if they don't provide it, they're not allowed to talk about it, they're not allowed to mention it on their website, et cetera. Trump's version of this was stronger than prior Republicans, and it has had harmful impact on health care services in poor countries around the world that have nothing to do with women's health. Uh, even in countries that outlaw abortion, at least one country, it has affected HIV testing, it has affected teen counsel, teen health, it has affected malaria and TB, that you can't get USAID money if you even, you know, sort of pronounce the syllables abortion, you're cut off. So it had maybe unintended consequences, but it sure, is, it sure had consequences. And it's a really good piece by Sarah. Stephanie. Oh, I have. It's a Kaiser Health News story. Biden plan to lower Medicare eligibility age to 60 faces hostility from hospitals by Phil Galowitz. Um, and this is, a, you know, it's another one of those stories that's looking at Biden's agenda and goals versus sort of the reality. And the fact is hospitals would get far less reimbursement under a broadened Medicare scenario. So they are stepping up their efforts to block this from happening. I think kind of considering where Congress is, it's already a tough situation. But this is yet this is a powerful, powerful industry group against this and um, kind of pointing out that that's going to be a major hurdle for the president-elect. Just another reminder that health care is hard, even if your party has the majority in Congress. And complicated. And two words. And complicated. (laughs) (laughs) And two words. You are correct on all of those things. All right. My story is also from KHN via the Washington Post. It's by our summer intern, Lizzie Lawrence, now returned to her day job as editor of the Michigan Daily. Go blue. It's called In Medical Schools, Students Seek Robust and Mandatory Anti-Racist Training. And I chose the story because I've spent a lot of the last six years looking at how medical education, particularly medical school, has been changing. But most of the changes I've written about have come from the top down. Lizzie's story is about how students themselves are pushing for curriculum changes, says the story, quote, they're demanding that the schools eliminate the use of race as a diagnostic tool, recognize how systemic racism harms patients, and reckon with some of medicine's racist history. They haven't achieved all of what those students want yet, but they are at least prompting some first steps, which is one tangible result, I think, of this summer's protests and those going back several years. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound okay even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Joanne? At Joanne Cannon. Stephanie? At Steph Armour, that's A-R-M-O-U-R-1. Shafali. At Shafali L. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.